and welcome to part two of IB Europe's podcast, Digital Dawn, where this week we are talking to Ravleen Beeston, Regional Vice President of Sales at Microsoft Advertising UK. Following on from a great chat about diversity and inclusion in the workplace in part one, our Chief Marketing Officer, Helen Massard, kicks off part two, discuss what it's like to work in the world of advertising and to talk about the role of purpose in marketing and how it can be used to build trusted brand experiences. So sit back, relax and enjoy part two. You've obviously been at Microsoft now 15 years. I could see now why you've been there so long. Like Especially, it seems like you guys are always managing to find new things to keep people feeling inclusive, which is just brilliant. But when I was looking into your background, the first thing that I noticed is that you studied astrophysics at King's College London. And then you went into media. You know, I was looking at where you first went. I was like, okay, yeah, she's had a solid career in media wait, she's an astrophysicist. This is incredible, Revelyn. Like, first of all, tell me a bit about your studying and then why did you decide to go into media? We're really happy to have you, by the way, but what made you take that switch? And it's not rocket science, right? I've used that one a few times. It's a really good question, actually. So I always have been a scientist at heart and I studied biology, physics, maths at A-level and my intention had always been to actually go into maths because I love working with numbers. And I remember I decided to take biology and maths for A-level. And I was speaking to my careers advisor because I just couldn't think of what to do as a third. And I remember her saying, well, you know, if you really like maths, you should maybe just do physics. 80% of physics is maths anyway. Yes, so yeah. I was like, yeah, all right, fine, we'll do that then. And so I took it on and I had two incredible physics teachers at A-level at my school who just made me fall in love with the subject we have been applauding teachers at the highest degree mm-hmm. for the past yeah. year. but you know really the impact that teachers can have I think is absolutely incredible and I was about to go into teaching by the way after I'd come out of university but we'll come back to that and I just fell in love with it and you know what I loved about physics is it gave maths a context it mm-hmm. gave a reason for it and it made me look at the world in a different way because I was finding out how things work, why they work that way. And I'd always been curious about those things, but never really understood how to get some of the answers. And so I loved it. And so when I was going to university, I was like, I have no idea what I want to be, but <laughs> I, I want to do this. <laughs> yeah, and lots of tea has made me. Yeah. And I took astrophysics as a, an additional because I've just always been fascinated by space and the sky. Mm-hmm. There was a point at which I wanted to work for NASA, but I'm massively agoraphobic. And so that kind of went down the hill pretty fast. After I left university, I was in a bit of a crossroads because the number one, why did I not pursue a career in science is a lot of the opportunities that were open to me at the time were lab-based, were research. And, you know, if there's one thing that I had learned quite early on about myself is that I love being surrounded by people and I get my energy from being around people. Mm -hmm. And so I'd done four years of lab work and I loved the subject, but I couldn't spend the rest of my life working in that way. And so that was a bit of a smack in the face for me to be honest and so I came out and was like oh what are we gonna do what are we gonna do it's a great foundation though I think when we're looking at our A-levels I was very similar I was doing economics history first of all what went to study economics and realised it's so stats-based, stay math. And that's actually not something I wanted to do. Being an economist, I work with a brilliant economist now and I look at him, absolutely no way could I do what he does. But it's having that foundation in place, I think, that adds an extra level of what you're going to bring to media. Yeah, totally. And then I got lucky, right? Because the second reason, you know, so not why I decided to then go into media is I didn't know that's what I 
was going into. I go skin and had no idea what I wanted to do. I was about to start doing a PGCE actually because I thought, you know, I'm so inspired by these physics teachers that I had that maybe I want to teach physics. And then this opportunity came along to join WPP. So it was an analyst role at Mindshare and they were hiring essentially data analysts in. And, you know, this recruiter got in touch with me and said, there's this media company and they need an analyst. And I was kind of like, oh my God, like I'm an astrophysicist, don't you know? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I've got to put my telescope down first and then yeah, I'm going exactly. to this. Yeah. Media company. And I still am in touch with this recruiter, by the way, because he was awesome. And he said to me, well, there is an analyst role, though. So although it's within a media organisation, they're hiring analysts for the first time and they're looking for people with your kind of profile. And I was like, well, you know, not that I had many options on the table at the time. So I thought, do you know what? I'm going to take it. I'm going to do it while I figure out what it is I actually want to mm-hmm. do. I need to get paid. <laughs> And lo and behold, I went into media at a time when the focus on data in advertising was just kind of exploding in a completely different way because Google had just launched AdWords and it was becoming mainstream. And so Hey Ho introduced the auction model bidding ROI mm-hmm. CPAs. And so I had come in right at the beginning of that and I absolutely loved it. I mean, it was like the perfect amalgamation of the things that I love doing. Like I got to work with reams and reams of data because obviously at the time we didn't have the kind of tools that we have today to analyze search campaigns and whatnot. We didn't even have the kind of bidding tools. I mean, I used to manually go in and change bids on thousands of keywords Mm -hmm. every day. Like that was my job. I'd be working out the ROIs and CPAs per keyword, which is crazy now for anyone that works in search and knows that you have these amazing tools that help you do all of that. And so I got to work with data, but I got to work with amazing people who just wanted to go out all the time and was super extrovert industry. And I got to, one of the things I also love is is taking data and taking really complex stuff and distilling it down into the simplest form and articulating the bit that's important. And I've always loved doing that. And it allowed me to do that. Your explanation there, it is almost the perfect career path that you went because you're right you know people outside our industry the early days 15 years ago that's probably when I entered the industry would look at media and couldn't quite understand everything was very very manual but there was so much calculations going on behind the scenes I'm so pleased that the ops teams back in the day are now like the superheroes they finally have been recognized for the incredible things that they've done and probably know the campaigns and working most of them you know like c-suite now that started off as ops planners because they know the ins and outs of the campaigns how everything worked like you said they're working out per keyword how things were performing and it's like the kind of traders on the stock market having to think really quickly on their feet be fast reactive So with someone with your background, especially mathematical, analytical mind, perfectly suited. But, you know, so over the last 15 years, we've talked about the automation and the changing tools that we have now. What other, I guess, changes or evolutions have you seen in the industry over the last 15 years? Oh, my gosh. There has been a lot. That's maybe quite a broad question, but maybe like what have been the top three changes you've seen in our industry? I think the biggest has been, it has to feature there, which is the move to dependence on data and insight. I mean, even now, the rise of data scientists within organizations, it's just, you know, these are becoming the key people within the organizations that I interact with and everything is coming from there. So I think that 
yes, we've always used data. And, you know, I've been in the industry for 17, nearly 18 years. It has exploded, particularly, I would say, over the last five to six years. I think people in the know have always known that data-driven decisions in marketing are really important. But I think what's happened in the last few years is that has now proliferated within the organizations where everyone left to right, top to bottom in organization understands the importance and the critical nature of treating your data with the utmost respect. So right, yeah. Throughout your career, what's the best piece of advice that you've received? What's the best piece of advice? There's been lots. One of them though that really that really stayed with me was use your seat at the table. Spend more time using your voice and less time questioning whether it should be there or not. You know, if there's something I could go back to my earlier in career self is to understand when you are in a position of privilege to have a voice and use it, you know, stop being so worried about how it might make you look or what other people around the table might think or feel if you really say what's on your mind. Because that was my biggest learning is that it's not that bad when you say what's on your mind. (laughs) And most of the time it works out really well. But, you know, the times when it doesn't, it was worth it. It was worth taking the fall for all times that it does work out. Would you give that advice if you're starting off, young people are starting off their career in our industry and women as well? Like, you know, we talked about women, like STEM students. There's quite a few that are coming into our industry. What advice would you give to them? Would it be that, like, take your seat at the table? Yeah, well, I think there's two, right? I think that advice for me is probably someone who's a bit more Mm mid-career. I think when you just start getting into senior positions within an organisation, that's when the imposter syndrome comes at its greatest, like in my experience anyway. I think I had probably less of it when I was early in career because I was just so hungry and like just wanted to learn. The expectations are less, aren't there? There's less dependencies, there's less expectations, we're less adverse to risk. And I think it does become a bit harder, you're right, as you progress in your career, because you're constantly looking around and thinking, oh, am I good enough for this role? Yeah. Who else could do this? Yeah, and it's hard, right? Because as you're getting a bit more senior within organisations, A, especially in my time, I was seeing less people who looked like me mm-hmm. at those tables. And so that was intimidating. There's just that constant voice in my head of, but do I have anything of value to say? Like all these people seem to know what they're doing much more than me. And I don't think it's a surprise that that's where we see a vast majority of women leaving organisations or yeah. leaving those industries or all the workforce altogether, because that time is so tough. And so I think that when someone said that to me, like a lady who was amazing and mentored me at the time, and she said, stop making this about you. This is about you. <laughs> You've got a seat at the table that people would kill for. And you're sitting there wasting all this energy on going, mm, should I be here or not? Versus thinking, what can I do while I'm here? Yes, how can you project those on? And she was like, what about everyone who's watching, hoping, praying that you're going to do it because they want to do it, but they need to see it. And it completely changed my perspective on how I felt in that situation. And so, yes, that is something I would share with anybody who's mid-career. I think any early in career people, particularly in our industry, my biggest advice would be go squiggly, right? Don't focus on the linear upwards path so early in your career, because the amazing thing about our industry is it's changing all the time. New products are coming in and out. It's so dynamic. Get used to having to move around and learn new things because it will serve you really well 
as you get later into your career and you haven't kind of pigeonholed yourself into moving in one track. So, yeah, I think sometimes there's a real pressure on an organisation, your litmus test for success is advancement, mm-hmm. you know, becoming more senior, becoming more senior. But actually it becomes harder and harder to kind of move cross functions as you get more senior. And I think having the realisation that you have this massive advantage when you're early in career that you can move around and it works to your advantage, it's seen as a really good thing and you're enriching yourself at a really early time in your career. I, that would probably be my big advice for anyone who's earlier in career. I think that's fantastic advice. So I'd now like to talk about the Marketing with Purpose playbook, Building Trusted Brand Experiences. And for those who aren't familiar, the Marketing with Purpose playbook by Microsoft Advertising is designed to empower all types of marketeers to help start marketing with purpose journey with strategies, research and insights. Before we kind of go through the book, and I must say, I was discussing this with my colleague earlier. I've read the book. What I really loved from it you can go in and you can choose the different chapters and there's takeaways of like the top six. I love that as well, that it wasn't like top five, <laughs> like top six parts, just really cool. Lots of different takeouts from it. It's like almost like a little Bible you could go in and pick and choose. But starting off with this book, I'm a marketeer and I was taught the four P's of marketing. And you introduced this concept of actually before we even get to those four P's. There is one P that we need to focus on first, and that's purpose. So I'd just like to find out from you, like, why should we start with purpose? And why do you feel that that is, I guess, more valuable to a business organization than the other four P's? Yeah, I mean, I'll be honest, I don't think purpose is more important than the four P's. But I do think it's the thing that amplifies mm-hmm. and takes the four P's like to the next level. I genuinely believe that consumers would forego you being less competitive on any of those other P's if purpose is done well. And I think that's why the book really talks about thinking about purpose first. You know, I don't think it's the most important. You've got to have the other four. But it's that amplification. It's the fact that there's this kind of halo effect of doing it and doing it right. And that's what, for me, makes it key to driving, you know, great business results. I just think, you know, consumers are just expecting so much more from the businesses that they choose to support and spend their money with, right? And you know this, we're consumers, we do the same. And everything that we've seen happen and unfold in our communities and society at large in the past year, it's really forced us to take a stand for something. And so people want the brands that they spend their money with to also stand for something meaningful. And, you know, as we know, as consumer priorities evolve, then business priorities have to change as well. And I think a lot of what the research that we've done tells us is that so much of this is grounded in purpose. So yeah, really glad that you got to read the whole play, but I agree with you. I've kind of dipped in and out of it and gone to different sections at different times, but there's so much in there. There really is like everything from, you know, like looking at responsibility and, you know, how you can create equitable experiences, but that responsibility, driving purpose, being accountable, value, this has never been more important than what we've witnessed over the last kind of 12 months. I'd just be interested from your perspective, have you seen, let's say someone has read word for word this book, any of those best practices, have you seen that apply to brands out there at the moment that you feel that are really using purpose in the right way? And it has been seen as being authentic, especially in the pandemic. I was thinking in my head about this because I'm not sure 
like not all of it is relevant to all brands because you've got like what's important to travel and it's split into the different sectors of course there are more things yeah yeah so I think it's different for different industries and I was thinking about one example that isn't necessarily just from the last year but it continues kind of the thing that continues to give but that really touched me actually is we talk about responsible marketing one of the key things within there being about equitable experiences and providing accessible customer experiences and I think one brand that's done that really well in probably the last, I think it's probably been two years, is Tommy Hilfiger and their adaptive clothes design. So, you know, they have this inclusive design for people with mobility challenges. And you can see how they're creating that kind of equitable design for a community that's so often overlooked. But when we talk about like that kind of stuff has to be authentic. Yes, it's amazing that they created a clothes line that is built and designed for individuals with disabilities, you know, zips that can be done and undone with one hand, Velcro replacing buttons on shirts. But it can't just stop there. And that's what I love about the Tommy Hilfiger example, because as well as that, they went all out in building an e-commerce website that was designed for people with all kinds of accessibility needs, you know, whether that's how they use their keyboards or whether those because they were partially sighted or were blind. And so they built their website the community that they were serving could actually go on and that's buy. such a great that's isn't it that's really thinking about like all elements and yeah the consumers and it isn't just stopping with the clothing and having a great ad campaign that's out there to show we're producing these clothes well that's it but then also in their ads they feature models that are also from that community mm-hmm. right and right way through to the director of that ad campaign a guy called James Rath who is blind so he directed the entire ad campaign, filmed it all. And you can see you know, some great interviews with him actually on YouTube as well. But that's the end to end, right? That's it's like 100%. It's living and breathing that value all the way through. It's authentic. And it comes through when you see that. I was actually, I think it was in Cannes a couple of years ago, obviously not last year, a couple of years ago, <laughs> where I, I, I got to, I went to a panel discussion, which was held by the VP of sales for Tommy Hilfiger. And they had some of the models come up who had been in the campaign and really talk about their experience working on that campaign. And I just thought it was, I'll be honest, I've not bought anything from Tommy Hilfiger before, but I walked away from there going, I'm going to buy something from there. Yeah, it does change your perception. It really does. And I think what's also incredible about stuff like that is I remember talking to other people in the audience, actually, when we were in the panel session, and they were passing around some of the clothes so that you could actually play with some of the new technology they've come up with about how you open and close zippers and things like that. And a load of people in the audience kind of talking about how amazing the designs were for small children. Mm-hmm right? Like how they would feel so much more independent if they didn't have to rely on their parents having to do up their buttons, getting zip stuck and laces and all that kind of thing that we know is just fiddly. And so it takes you on to the next piece, which is around inclusive marketing and inclusive design, which is when you design for the edge cases, you actually design for a much bigger audience. Mm -hmm. You're not just designing and making it convenient for those people. And, you know, another, I'll use the I'll use one of our own Microsoft examples, like the Xbox Adaptive Controller, which again, Microsoft designed for gamers with specific accessibility needs. But actually, it's also great for now we know that we are going to have an aging gaming population coming up and there will be dexterity needs of that population. And we have this controller, which is completely customizable and adaptable to anybody that will then extend out to that audience as well. So it's so much bigger than Mm -hmm. what 
somebody might first set out. But yeah, it was that was an example. That I, think that's, I think that's such a great example. And with regards to the book, what would be the top two things that you'd want people reading the playbook to take away with them? Top two things. Again, there's so much in there, but you're kind of cheating by getting me to try and distill that down to two. There's lots of actionable stuff in there. The top two, and I hope it does it justice, but I'm just trying to think about intersecting with the time that we're in at the moment and what we're going through. I think with the lockdown and pandemic, so much more discovery and buying by consumers is happening through websites and online. And so going back to probably the Tommy Hilfiger example that we use is put the effort into ensuring your sites are accessible to the widest possible audience. Mm -hmm. In the playbook, there are actually checklists for making your website top for accessibility, you know, how to set out the website in a logical, orderly way, ensure there's alt text behind images, videos, checklists and best practices for if you're using links within websites for somebody who might have disabilities or challenges with accessing websites. So I think for me, this is like just the very fundamental of inclusive marketing. Your website is your shop at the moment. It's your shop front. So, you know, open that door to everybody. Don't close it off to anybody. So I think that would be the first thing I would like anyone to take away from that. Second, I think this, it might not be explicit in the playbook. And we discussed this earlier. I think we just have to start with ourselves. Mm -hmm. Take a look at the marketers that are sitting around your table in, in your teams. Are they truly representative of the customers that you are saying that you are serving? Do they look like them? Do they bring in a perspective that's different from everybody else around the table? You know, are they going to bring you some deep sense of empathy that's only really built through proximity and experience? Because I genuinely believe that only when you have that can you truly build inclusive marketing that builds that kind of trust and loyalty that we talk about in that playbook. Representation at the tables where decisions are made mm -hmm. is absolutely key. And we all control that, you know. There are a lot of marketers, senior marketers that are connected to the IAB and hopefully listen to the podcast and they are the people that can make that change. hundred percent agree. We've seen the rise of e-commerce this year and there is so many incredible insights that I've read about. And this is actually one of the first that I've seen about how you can drive inclusivity with e-commerce. Like you said, you've included within the playbook checklists for what you should be doing to get your site ready. And those are the little areas that I think we're going to see so much more notice will be taken over the next kind of 12 to 18 months. It's really encouraging that you guys have kind of made that start on this and have put together some really good advice for brands. So before I wrap up today, I just wanted to just do a quick fire questions for you. So something a little bit lighter. What's going to be the first place you visit after lockdown? My mum's. Yes. I I haven't seen my mum since November. I'm missing her a lot. Where does your mum live? In Kent. Not far Kent. So that's the only restriction, isn't it? It's like the stay local. Yeah. yeah. I'm with you there. We're quite fortunate. My parents are kind of 30 minutes down the road. So once we, once it all opens up a little bit more, we can, you know, start seeing. I think everyone's saying that family, family, family. Are you a TikToker or a Clubhouse listener? I am neither. I dabble with TikTok, but I'm not there yet. My social media platform of choice is Insta. And I love an Insta story. You might have noticed, but I love telling a story. And so it's like my perfect soulmate platform. Yeah. It's Insta stories. I do like with TikTok, the surprise element. My partner's always walking in and he's like, oh, you're on TikTok again, because I'll be laughing at something. Yeah. <laughs> I always find that I will laugh, you know, at the silly videos. And my niece, who's 18, it's been brilliant because... She sends me videos now yeah. on TikTok. 
as you can never and, used to. Uh, yeah, yeah we, on this, I mean, look, because of the industry we work in, we've got to dabble in everything, right? Just to be in the know of yeah. how it works and what's going on. But yeah, in my house, my husband is the big TikToker, and so. I consume my TikTok content. He's showing you the videos. (laughs) Yes, that's exactly what I do with my partner. And then with Clubhouse, IB Romania, actually, who are absolutely brilliant. And they do a series of digital kind of drop-in chats on Clubhouse. So they invited me to take part in the first Clubhouse the other day. I really loved the format of kind of like the audio only it felt like everyone slowed down a little bit more to actually listen because you couldn't really see each other. It was a bit like doing a live podcast almost. Wow. Yeah, it's quite interesting, but it's a very new platform. You know, like I haven't investigated the privacy elements, all of those things. So there's always that word of caution. Okay, well, thank you so much, Evelyn. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. And if anybody would like to get hold of the playbook, we will be featuring a link in the podcast. We'll have the link available for you. But thank you very much. And we will speak to you very soon. Yeah, you too. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Thank you for tuning in. We'll be back with a new episode very soon. So be sure to subscribe and tell anyone else who might be interested to listen in too. For more information on IEB Europe, you can visit our website at www.ieburope.eu or contact us via at IEB Europe on Twitter. Thanks for listening and stay safe.